0: Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker.
1: Do you feel that the law is responsive to you? Do you feel like you have access to it? Well, we're going to talk about some of those issues. My guest today is Tom Gordon. He's the executive director of Responsive Law, which is a nonprofit organization which is it's dedicated to making the law more responsive to consumers. Tom welcome it's so good to have you back on call for actions of Great. consuming interest. Great to be here again, Shirley. Now you've you've brought up some very important things and this is I gather is in your recent blog. Would you tell our listeners how to find your blog because they really should read these things. These are consumer information that are very important.
0: Sure we are at uh, our website is responsivelaw.org. Uh, the blog is uh, the link at the very top of the page, or you can just do responsivelaw.org/blog to see what's been going on recently with us.
1: Yeah, and and there's some interesting things that have going on. And let's just start out with the the biggies. Um, the uh, I, I gather you have filed a couple of briefs. I know you do this a good deal in support of certain issues. Tell us about what is going on in South Carolina right now with the NAACP. Sure.
0: Uh, in South Carolina, uh, the NAACP wanted to provide uh, tenants facing eviction with advice on uh, how to defend themselves. And uh, this is a thing, obviously, that's useful to a great many people, especially as we come out of the pandemic and some of the help that was available to people. Uh, more and more people are facing eviction. Uh, also, uh, there's a lot, most people in South Carolina, as in everywhere else in the country, can't afford a lawyer. And the NAACP wanted to have people who, while not uh, lawyers, not members of the bar, were trained in giving advice on eviction matters, people who had great competence and great skill and were able to give people the right information and would be doing it for free as a nonprofit. Uh, Their concern was that they would be subject to uh, civil and criminal penalties for the unauthorized practice of law. That is, when someone who's not a lawyer does things that lawyers wanna keep for themselves. Uh, And so they filed a lawsuit Asking uh, the federal courts in South Carolina to uh, hold that they were allowed to do this as a matter of their First Amendment rights, that they were allowed to give This legal advice to people, even though they're not lawyers, because to say otherwise would violate their First Amendment rights to speak on these public issues.
1: Well, you know, that gets to be a little bit scary because, you know, at Call for Action, we work with consumers all the time and we certainly don't pretend to be lawyers, but we do give them advice on things. And I don't don't think it borders on giving them legal advice, but when does it start to become legal advice? It seems to me like landlord tenant, if I went to my next door neighbor and asked them for information on helping me with a lease. Would they be accused of giving giving legal advice? I mean, this gets to be a rather murky area, and it seems to me like the bar association in in South Carolina is trying to put a stop to all of it. What what is the your feeling about the court case, and when when do you think it might be resolved? Sure.
0: Uh, well, this is you're you're correct to see that this is a very murky area, and there's uh, it's not that people don't understand it uh, who are trying to avoid. Uh, getting in trouble for unauthorized practice. It's that the rules about it are written very vaguely. Um, so, in most states, it's unclear whether some a particular activity would be considered the practice of law or the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, so, your neighbor giving you some advice on a matter that touches on law uh, could very well be considered unauthorized practice. If there's a, a zealous enough, aggressive enough person uh, who's prosecuting it or wants to bring a lawsuit against it, uh, almost anything that is advice that touches on the law and that's most of our lives uh could be considered the unauthorized practice of law and that's exactly why the south carolina naacp wanted to get clear statement as to uh whether this was allowable uh so we filed a brief sorry go ahead shall we no go ahead oh so we filed our brief uh Obviously, the NAACP was very strongly arguing the First Amendment rights to give this advice. What we argued in our brief and the unique perspective we brought was that consumers have a First Amendment right to receive legal advice, the First Amendment right to receive speech, and that's been important in all sorts of contexts, Uh, and it's not as well-known of a First Amendment right, but it's been well-established by the courts that people have a right to receive speech, and the First Amendment is just as important in protecting that right as it is to protect the speaker.
1: Well, you know, the part of this that really bothers me is that what the NAACP is trying to do is to provide help to people who are about to be evicted, who who are having lease problems or problems with the landlord tenant or whatever. It seems to me like these people, and as, as you pointed out in your blog, that they are unable to afford the fees of an attorney and um, that this is to meet those needs is it possible? I mean, couldn't they be considered a free clinic? What would have to happen for the, uh, for the bar association to get off of their back? Um, I mean, is it not allowed to have a, a free clinic to provide advice and help to people? Is that what they're trying to do to wipe it all out? I mean, these are uh, people that really need help. And if you're standing to lose your home, you really need help?
0: Absolutely. And Uh, In short, uh, you know what the what the bar in South Carolina and in other places uh, is saying in these instances, and what the law, what the uh, the premise of the law, taken charitably, is that uh, it's to protect people from service providers who are not providing Mm. competent advice. That they're saying only a lawyer can provide competent advice. Um, That's taken that charitably. Unfortunately, that's just not true. That that only a lawyer can provide useful information. I've said on your show before, you could come to me and I'm a lawyer admitted in Maryland in the District of Columbia. You could come to me and I'm legally allowed to write your will. I am one of the last people you'd want to have do that. Uh, whereas there are paralegals out there who've been working on these issues for decades who would be well more qualified to write a will than I would. Um, well, I won't
1: so, Tom? I won't come to you for that, Tom, I promise. <laughs> but I see your point. It doesn't mean that just because they're a lawyer that they're necessarily qualified to speak into that area, whereas these may be people who've taken advanced courses, who have taken all, studied it, and may have been involved in issues of their own with leases and and evictions and whatnot. So these are these are people who are out there trying to offer good advice to these consumers, who I suspect are really in dire straits in most circumstances. It's what it sounds like to me.
0: Absolutely, the justification for these unauthorized practice rules is that someone should have a lawyer instead of having somebody else. And that's just a false choice. No one, most people don't have a choice between a lawyer and someone who's not a lawyer. Um, So even assuming the lawyer is a better service provider, that's still not a choice people have. Most people have the choice between nothing and someone who can help them with some degree of competence. And that's what people should have the right to in South Carolina facing eviction and anywhere else where they're facing legal matters.
1: Is it gonna take a long time for this to be settled?
0: It absolutely will. Well, if there's a if there's an out of court settlement, it would not take as long. But if it for it to get through the court system, could take a while. Uh, as an example, just recently, shortly after uh, these briefs were filed, the South Carolina District Court granted a motion uh, by uh, South Carolina that uh, it should be uh, moved to state court uh, for reasons that. Would take way too much of your time on air, Uh, but uh, it's going to go to state court and it could end up bouncing back to federal court again, depending on how things get resolved. And uh, it could take quite some time before this gets resolved finally.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, let's take a, on on that unhappy note, let's take a brief pause here to let our listeners know they're tuned into of consuming interest here in the federal news network. My guest is Tom Gordon, He's the executive director of Responsive Law, which is a nonprofit organization designed to make the legal system more accessible to consumers. And uh, the case you were just talking about in South Carolina has bearing on people's homes, their livelihood, their mental and physical health as well. So let's hope that it can get resolved in in some sort of a fortuitous manner. But also I think you, you mentioned that there's a, uh, an appeal, a brief that you all filed um, in New York State. That is, is it similar?
0: It is, yes. Uh, There's a case in New York State where a nonprofit uh, company called Upsolve, uh, which does work on bankruptcy matters, providing free information to people about filing for bankruptcy. They wanted to, in New York State, uh, provide information to people facing debt collection actions. and they wanted to do this again much like in south carolina in fact this precedes what happened in south carolina Uh, they wanted to provide this through free advice from people they would train uh, essentially on how to fill out the form that you use to respond to a debt collection suit so there's a standard form in new york that the courts accept for replying to a debt collection action being brought against you they wanted to train people on how to fill out that form and then let those people give advice on filling out the form to people who were facing debt collection suits. Um, and they I, did a I, similar- I,
1: I just, it boggles my mind that they can consider this something that has to go to a lawyer.
0: Right, and again, this is the sort of thing where there can, you can be an expert in this very specific area without being a lawyer. In fact, as in the other case of you know, me writing your will, I would not know the first thing about how to uh, how to write the, how to fill out this form for you. I would be able to read the instructions as well as you could uh, but someone who's been trained on this would do a much better job, whether they're a lawyer or not. Uh, and so Upsolve went and, again, worried about whether this would be allowed. They asked the court to grant an injunction, allowing them to provide these services. Um, and in what's really a landmark case, uh, the court ruled that this would, in fact, uh, be protected under the First Amendment in this particular instance. Uh, not well, hallelujah, Upsolve,
1: a victory for consumers. But, mm-hmm.
0: Right. And they, they did not buy... Uh, the New York State's arguments that this was a legitimate way to uh, apply consumer protection, that when you're dealing with First Amendment matters, uh, it's very important that you deal with, as in any constitutional, constitutional right, that you use the least restrictive means of, mm-hmm. uh, of restricting that. So if it's not the least restrictive means of limiting someone's speech, then you can't do it. And that's what they found, is that this is a legitimate First Amendment protection Legitimate First Amendment speech, and it was being restricted unfairly and uh, in too broad of a manner. So that uh, was in federal court in New York. It's up to the federal appeals court right now. We again filed a brief similar uh, to our brief in the South Carolina case, where we said that again, this is an important First Amendment matter for not just the speakers, but for the listeners, the receivers of the information. Consumers have nowhere else to go, and this is really a lifeline for them. If they're facing a debt collection action. A lot of these things are not even brought in good faith, uh, and uh, a lot of times it is somebody who is uh, picking up some, you know, picking up some trail that uh, really doesn't even lead to you. It may be debt that doesn't yeah. belong to you. Uh, it's certainly not somebody who's trying to help you out. And so to have someone available to help you out with that, who knows how to fill out this form, who's going to avoid you getting a default judgment against you because you just didn't know what to do, is really helpful. Um, and something that people should have a right to have. People should have a right to have this information. Yes, um, because it's not licensed.
1: It's not an even field for consumers if they themselves are trying to go up sometimes against debt collectors. They're good debt collectors. I'm, I'm all for people paying their debt, but I also know that there's some bad actors in the field. So, you know, we make it sound like lawyers are terrible. My husband's a lawyer. You're a lawyer. We're not against lawyers. We're just trying to get more access for consumers because from our standpoint at Call for Action, we see how how difficult it can be for people who have, well, you know, like the whole issue of small claims court that you and I have talked about in the past. The, the amounts in small claims court, especially here in Maryland this, and, and our local jurisdictions, are so ridiculously small that they don't cover much of anything anymore, not with, not with when we're dealing with inflation and all of the changes and things that change the value of the dollar. So, you know, I, I like your fight Tom to get more access and I'm hoping that, that these issues will be, and, and it sounds like the brief positive from New York is a positive one. Do you think that might in any way impact on what comes out of South Carolina?
0: Uh, it might. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be binding on South Carolina. It's not uh, again for reasons, of so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, things that we do go to law school to learn about and <laughs> it's not, uh, yeah. not going to be binding on South Carolina, but it would have some weight, I think, if uh, another ruling came down from the appeals court uh, in New York or in the Second Circuit there that's, uh, that said that this was something that uh, that they have a right to provide, that people have a right to this advice. Uh, so that would, yeah. that would, I think, be a real watershed for people's rights all over the country to get the legal information that they should be entitled to to navigate the a system that's really too confusing to navigate without some sort of help.
1: Well, when these, these are state decisions, uh, I gather. So that's not federal law. So these issues then maybe have to be fought out in other states as well?
0: Uh, Well, if there's enough, you know, states will try to say in many cases that the, whatever decision doesn't apply to their uh, particular circumstances. But uh, if this is something that is found by, Let's say, for example, the Second Circuit, uh, where the New York case is on appeal, finds that this is a First Amendment right uh, that is protected. Uh, they, The lower court limited its ruling just to upsolve and said this doesn't necessarily apply to other, uh, other companies that be, or other organizations that may be trying to do similar work. But uh, let's say the Second Circuit made a broader ruling that says this is a protected First Amendment right generally. Uh, that would apply to any state within the Second Circuit, uh, which is a uh, you know New York and a few other states as well. That would mm-hmm. be the you know the governing law in those states. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, in, if something in South Carolina moved up through the court system, that could be the governing law in other states in the uh, in that area yeah. as well.
1: Well, that's encouraging. So that an example there may not just be isolated to that one state. It may have an impact in, in many jurisdictions around the country. I I, I like the thought of that. And I, I'm hoping that, that some of these things will loosen. But unfortunately, um, one of the things that you were talking about in your blog is the attitude of the American Bar Association and how it's uh, doesn't seem to be responsive to changes within its its membership and making any changes, making things more liberal uh, Excuse me, more accessible for consumers. We're going to talk about that when we come back. We're going to take a brief pause here to let our listeners know they're tuned into of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Tom Gordon. He's the executive director of Responsive Law, which is a nonprofit organization out there. Fighting for consumers' rights uh, and to give us more access so that we don't have to hire a lawyer to uh, do everything in, the, in our lives. And, and, but let's talk about the American Bar Association that you just wrote about. What's going on there? I mean, um, they're, they're protecting the interests of their membership. I understand that, but sometimes maybe protection, self-protection can go too far.
0: Yeah, well, yes, the the ABA, American Bar Association, uh, is a national trade association for lawyers. Um, And to some extent, that means they're no different than trade associations representing steel workers or representing uh, newspaper publishers or representing um, uh, pharmacies or any other type of uh, business interests. However, uh, there's a difference in that uh, the ABA also has a role that is taken on for itself as part of its mission as protecting the interests of justice, the interests of people to have access to the U.S. system of law and justice. Uh, so what's happened recently at the ABA? Uh, the ABA has tended to be, uh, let's say, not at the vanguard of uh, the changes in the regulation of the legal profession. They're not, they're not leading the parade to change the laws uh, restricting who can provide legal information. They're usually very strongly opposed. Uh, That said, uh, just as not all lawyers think the same way, not even all members of the ABA think the same way. And there are folks within the ABA uh, who have been pushing for more reform or at least having discussions about what can be done to change some of these restrictions and improve uh, access to the legal system, while at the same time making things potentially better for lawyers as well in uh, being able to reach their clients and potential clients in new innovative ways. So one of the things the ABA did a few years ago was to start uh, a center within the ABA called the Center for Innovation, and that was supposed to be a place where uh, ideas that were new and possibly uh, even revolutionary and possibly would require some sort of change to regulations of who can provide legal services and how they're provided uh, would have a chance to breathe, would have a chance to be discussed. Um, Now, keep in mind, the ABA doesn't actually set any official rules or official laws for uh, for state policies about these things. Those state laws and policies are set by the state courts and by the state bars. The ABA's role is purely advisory in this capacity, but it does carry a lot of weight with states when the ABA makes suggestions about potential changes to law and policy. Um, So with all that in mind, uh, a colleague and I were invited to uh, write a piece for the ABA Center for Innovations journal uh, comes out twice a year. Uh, it was supposed to be published in early August. And uh, just before it was supposed to be published, uh, we found out that it was not, in fact, being published. Uh, the upshot of it, and you can read more about the detail of this in our blog, uh, is that there were changes at the Center for Innovations board uh, from the ABA leadership that uh, replaced the ABA's board, sorry, the Center for Innovations board of people who were thought leaders in this area who had a lot of experience and a lot of interest in trying to figure out how to make things better for both lawyers and consumers. Uh, Replace those board members with an entirely new slate of people who were very strongly opposed to those types of reforms. Not only were they opposed to them, they were so opposed that they ended up pulling our article. So uh, this was, you know, one op-ed in a, a journal that was have several other pieces in it as well. And uh, this is from the ABA Center for Innovation. They didn't even want to have a discussion of Potential innovation. So, Center
1: Center for non-innovation. Okay, right. We've given it a new. We've given it a new name. Well, well, let's talk about the worldview. And and you know, I'm not uh, I'm not always impressed with worldviews of things that we do. But unfortunately, the World Justice Project um, put out a rating, I guess, of countries and access to cons- to law and access to consumer, um, for the consumer. You want to tell us about a little bit about that world justice project or you had written about it in your blog a little while ago.
0: Sure. Actually, uh, yeah, that's going to be, um, interesting because they do this every year. The world justice project, uh, Every October, actually. Uh, so they're coming out with a new one later this month. They put out a rating of the rule of law in various countries, and this is done over a few dozen different dimensions. Uh, the US does fairly well, as do most, uh, you know, most democracies do fairly well in this, um, but the US is consistently scored among the worst in the world in uh, the category of access to an affordability of civil justice. So um, while we're looking very much like a democracy with the rule of law in almost every other aspect uh, of our legal system, uh, our issues, uh, access and accessibility of legal help, we're near the bottom, usually in the bottom bottom twenty percent, uh, along with countries that you would certainly not think of as uh, being under the rule of law. Afghanistan was one of our uh, neighbors in this uh, particular part of the rating uh, recently, for example. So uh, this is you know indicative of how far the U.S. has fallen from its ideals in this area. Uh, we are supposed to be a beacon of uh, a system where everybody has a fair shot. And if we don't even let people into the system, if we don't even let people have a means of working within the legal system, then we're really failing uh, those ideals of the rule of law that we're supposed to be upholding.
1: We just have a couple of minutes here. So so basically, a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're we can't go to other people, just like some of the examples that we've been citing to get information, which may or may not be considered legal information. Is that one of the things that gives us such a low rating is the fact that we just can't get access to information without going to a lawyer?
0: Exactly. Um, and I've spoken with people from other countries uh, where there's not necessarily as much of a formal legal system. Uh, and there's still a lot of bureaucracy that people have to get through and a lot of process that people have to navigate, Uh, but there may not be that many lawyers in those countries. And so Mm -hmm. uh, what they've described that as is uh, people in those states have said they've uh, been able to work within a regulatory white space, uh, that there's space where no one's really bothering them. So yes, they're not a lawyer, but no one really cares that much if you are a lawyer, if you're providing good information to people. Um, And so even though there's maybe a few dozen lawyers in the country, there's plenty of legal help available because it's available uh, through other means. Whereas here, uh, there's a lot of lawyers um, and it should be enough lawyers to help everybody with a lot of their legal problems, but uh, the lawyers don't want to either let somebody else provide help or don't want to allow innovations to the way they provide help that would allow them to do it on a more uh, mass market basis.
1: Yeah. Well, Tom, it's been fascinating. It's such a treat to have you on, and and we wish you luck in the things that you're doing. I've worked with you for a number of years, and I always respect what you're doing. So you've been listening to Of Consuming Interest. My guest has been Tom Gordon. He's the Executive Director of Responsive Law. Law. You should check them out at their website at responsivelaw.org. I'm Shirley Rooker. Thank you for joining us.